I'm Dave Minaka, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. In this edition of From My Angle, I welcome fellow head of school, Scott Looney. Scott became head of school at Hawkins School just outside Cleveland, Ohio in 2006. Hawkins is one of the leading independent schools in the country with progressive roots that Scott helped revitalize upon his arrival. Hawkins serves over 1,300 students in grades pre-K through 12 on their three campuses. Scott is an inspiration as a leading voice for change in the independent school industry. In addition to his role as an innovative head of school, he is the founder of the Mastery Transcript Consortium, a three-year-old organization now comprised of over 200 leading independent and public schools across the country. This consortium, of which Parrish is a part, is working together to change the high school system of assessment, crediting, and transcripting in the hopes of making the learning experience for our young people deeper, richer, and healthier. In this podcast, Scott and I share our thoughts on why we believe the independent school experience needs reimagining, how Scott and his team have implemented such changes at Hawken, and how the Mastery Transcript aspires to help drive such positive change. I know you'll enjoy this episode with Scott Looney. And so, uh, Scott, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great uh, to be here. So glad you could, uh, you could be with us today on the podcast. So uh, you're not here in market in Dallas where a lot of uh, our parent audience is. So first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Hawken and maybe the background of your professional journey that brought you there in 2006? Sure. Uh, Hawken is a preschool through 12th grade day school on three campuses with 1,350 kids. Um, we're the biggest independent school in Ohio, and um, uh, I've been here 13 years. I, in addition to being head, my three sons went through the school. They're all in college or out of college, so um, I'm a past parent, but that was a fun journey. And uh, prior to that, I was the assistant head at a school in Detroit called Cranbrook, uh, which is a large day boarding school of about 1,800 kids. Um, and then I had stops at, uh, you know, Lake Forest Academy, Phillips Academy. I worked in college development for a little while. So, so a little bit of a potpourri prior to that. Yeah, so your journey uh, really through the independent school ranks has brought you through some uh, fairly traditional schools, then to Hawken. Hawken has a progressive history, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it would be fair to say you had to uh, bring the school back to that progressive history. So tell us just a little bit about that because I think it's a really interesting story and it will segue into your and my discussion of philosophically kind of where we see independent schools needing to go to lead the conversation today. Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, so Hawken was founded in 1915 by a literal disciple of John Dewey. Uh, James Hawken was inspired, I think, by by, uh, John Dewey in in lots of obvious ways. and we were founded as a tiny little um, boys' school in the middle of the city of Cleveland, and over time grew um, from 19 students to 1,300. Um, but in 1970s, uh, in the 60s, then went from being a K-8 school to a K-12 school, and then in the 70s uh, became co-ed, um, and we've always been non-sectarian. But 
you know, for our first 50 years, we're a little over 100 years old, uh, we were pretty progressive in the way that you think about progressive education. Um, you know, a lot of hands-on learning, experiential learning, really interesting, flexible schedules, um, no grades. Um, hmm. And then in the 50s, uh, you know, a couple leaders came from the East Coast and we kind of brought the academy's model, started to bring in more of a traditional uh, feel. The school got bigger, um, and, and I think there was obviously parent encouragement in that direction mm -hmm. and then like a lot of schools in the you know after uh a nation at risk uh, we got caught up in the standardization movement that you know most schools got caught up in trying to to out ap score and sat score everyone else uh, and so when i arrived at hawken um it was a little bit of an unusual job description in that they they were literally and very obviously advertising for a change agent they were not saying hey we're really happy with where we are um and there were a couple of things that they were looking to one was this idea that you know maybe we should lean back into the direction that we were started with with um whole child education being our, our focus again and then there was some really complicated uh messy both cultural and personnel issues around the upper school in particular that um, was was pretty unfortunate. Um, and so I spent a few years uh, really working on raising the spirits and the collegiality of the upper school. Um, I turned over a quarter of the upper school in my first two years, um, uh, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident. But um, but really by year four, it felt like a very different place with with some real energy starting to foment around innovation. And once that was in place, uh, the first thing we did is we went after time. We blew up the schedule and we, re we reorganized it to, to build time largely for experiential learning. So much longer teaching blocks, including two periods we call intensives, which is um, the three weeks between Thanksgiving and the winter break and the three weeks at the end of the year where mm -hmm. kids just take one subject all day, every day. And, and unlike J term where it's just sort of fun and then great, it's a, uh, it's for academic credit. It's full, it's a full semester credit. I mean, similar to Colorado college, you know, um, and, and that was a big shift and that required a lot of growth on the faculty's part. And our first year it was, eh, it was marginal, but um, now it's extraordinary. It's, it's probably one of the most amazing things we do here. And it's, and it's certainly one of the signature, aspects of our school but along that journey our school got kind of in in enraptured in, in by those original traditional um progressive ideals and we've tried to figure out what that looks like in the 21st century and 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 as you know and this is why it's fun to talk to you it really starts to put some of the the central pillars of the current paradigm on trial um, the things that everybody takes, you know, the current educational model is about 130 years old, and that's kind of a ubiquitous paradigm that people believe, take as a given. Well, of course you have to have courses, and of course you have to have grades, and of course you have to cohort kids by age, and of course you have to, you know, kids have to worry mostly about content mastery. And, and if you take all of those as a given, you know, some of the original ideas of progressive education look like an outlier. Um, but if you step back from that paradigm and you just look at educational research and research on human brain development, and, and by the way, the research on brain development went exponential when we could see inside the human brain. Um, yeah, we now know generally how the brain works and we didn't until about the 1960s, 1970s. So in the last 40 years, um, what we know about how people actually learn is very different. 
And what we know is that that paradigm that everybody takes as, as given is wrong, just wrong. And it's not a little wrong, it's just wrong. And right, the problem yeah. is all of our systems, all of our outputs, they're all organized around this. So as you unwind this, I know you're trying to do this, um, you, you have to slaughter not just a sacred cow, you have to slaughter the whole herd. And, yeah. and that, that's messy. So It sure is. Yeah, I'm trying to get like, a Texas I, reference in there. How'd I do? Oh, you did great. I, I, feel, like we're, I feel like we're in that, uh, what, what a lot of the entrepreneurs call the messy middle uh, ourselves. But I'll commend uh, to your latter point around uh, brain development and, and the last decade of what uh, magnetic uh, resonance imaging in the brain has uh, told us. To the previous podcast, uh, the first one of this season with David Gleason, who I'm sure you know, the author of At What Cost, um, who does an excellent job just in one chapter chronicling uh, brain development and, and really what the present model does to that. But in that um, really excellent um, uh, unpacking of, of Hawkins' return to its progressive values and how you uh, as a community have now aligned around uh, challenging some of the, uh, the, the uh, uh, premises and, and apparatus, as I call it, of, of school, you know, I, I would also cite uh, and, and want to dig in for just a second on, you know, what, be, what is it that began to change uh, in the context of our observation uh, of, of learning in independent schools around that time? I got to Parrish in 2009, uh, previous to this when I was at Ravenscroft, around the time that you arrived at Hawken. I was looking around and seeing uh, sallowed-eyed, uh, knuckle-dragging upper school students walking across our campus. You know, athletes who would come out to the playing field where I was, uh, just absolutely uh, exhausted. And uh, I think for me, I go, um, I go the world is flat with Friedman around 01, uh, beginning to say, you know, is this really the model? And then I go to the user in the mid kind of 2000s and saying, uh, really just asking myself, what are we, what are we doing here? Content driven, outcome fixated, um, you know, metric, metric based. Mind-numbingly boring. Yes. And especially our oldest kids who really lacked engagement. So like, where do you cite kind of your epiphanal moment? Like, whoa, we've got to change course. Is, is there, is there such a timeline for you or was it more something that just evolved over, uh, over your arrival point at, at Hawkins? Yeah, no, it's very, it's very obvious to me. I had children. Um, you know, prior to that, all of my experience was working with either college-age students or high school students. And I thought the fact that I hated almost every moment of school until I got to college, um, that I was just an outlier. I, I did well academically because right. my high school wasn't very challenging, so I could, I could kind of sleepwalk through school. But I hated almost every minute of it. Um, but I thought maybe I was abnormal until I started watching what happens when you give young children the opportunity to learn. My wife's an early child educator. She always knew this. I wasn't. I didn't have a lot of experience with little kids. Mm -hmm. But I had my own and I realized, huh, you know what? They seem to really like to learn stuff um, until they get to about third grade. Yeah. When we start to standardize everything and we start to put systems and industrial processes on top of them that suck the love of that, the curiosity and love of learning out of them and, and turn this into um, a competitive game, um, a, a competitive game where even the winners lose. And, and that's the second epiphany. Um, my first epiphany is like, wait, kids are naturally curious. They like to learn. How can we create a system where they hate it? <laughs> Apparently it wasn't just me. Um, 
it was, and I, and so that really got me to the point where I'm like, well, maybe there's a better way. And, yeah. and then, and then later in my career, what really happened is I've worked in schools where the kids, even, you know, we have a very high proportion of kids who receive financial aid We have the largest aid budget of any school in Ohio. We give out $10 million of aid, but even our poorest kid compared to most students in Cleveland is, is highly advantaged because they get to go to my school. Um, we have, we're a research resource rich school with enormous amount of personalized attention, right? So our kids have every advantage and I can't, I, I look at the outcome of our system and I'm not sure it's good for them anymore. Right. Like this is the very best of education. I don't think there are schools a lot better than Andover and Cranbrook and Hawken. I don't think there are some, but there aren't many. This is about as good as it gets as far as I'm concerned. And I'm watching what, and you think, well, maybe it's just some of those kids are misplaced. I think the kids who are almost the most abused by the system are the kids in cum laude, the kids at the top of our class. Um, we are taking the best and brightest in this country, the kids who are most willing to work hard, who have real ability, and we're turning them into neurotic perfectionists. Yes. Um, yes. And we're doing it for one reason, which is we think that we think that we've been convinced because of selective college admissions that our job is to sort and rank children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And after 15 years of sorting and ranking, it's not surprising when some kids think that's the way to win in life and they organize their entire self-worth around winning that externally rewarded game. And it's really toxic. And so I thought to myself, I said, wait, if this is the best the system offers and these kids are the most privileged and the most capable and the net result for the very best and brightest in the very best schools is a crippling lifelong addiction to perfectionism and extrinsic rewards, like this has got to go. Like I'm no longer willing to participate in this system as, as a tweaker, as somebody who can nibble around the edges. I'm, yeah. We're going to blow some of this up or I'm going to go do something else for a living. And in the world of the late, uh, in the world of the late 20th century, when post-secondary and post-collegiate world was still relatively linear you know you might leave college and go work at GE for 30 years right so, you know having gamed school and sort of learned the, the linearity of school really served you well sure. in, in the real world quote unquote whereas right. today we call it right. our mission statement the complex global society you know what's happening is we're sending 22 and 23 year old 23 year olds out into a world that's not no longer rules-based Right. So they played by the rules uh, incessantly and intensely through our high schools and yes, yeah. up into our colleges. And then they're dumped out in their 20s saying, what exactly did I just run that race for? And I can't figure out the rules of this new right. complex global society. So, you know, it's a, well, not, it's only, not only that, but we, not, not only that, but we taught them a, a set of rules that they've internalized that actually make it less likely that they have any chance at all. Um, and, and here's what I mean. If you look at the, at the way our system's set up, it's perfectly tuned to create people who are obedient within a hierarchical structure, who have the capacity to work their way up incrementally in a hierarchical structure. Like you said, that was the, that was the, high, that was the, the structure of most work. You started at the mailroom and you worked your way up to the CEO. Right. Um, there's still some of that, but not much of it. And then the second thing is, is that until the advent of you know, the internet, um, it really was important that you carried a lot of law of content knowledge, just pure knowledge with you. Um, in some time in the next 15 years, any job that's routine or that is deeply reliant simply on the replication of knowledge will be completely replaced by computers. 
And right now, um, the smartphone in my pocket is singularly the worst piece of technology that five-year-olds in our school will ever see. And it was, if you gave it to my grandparents when I was born in 1964, fell from Mars. So, so that's not a small shift. That's not a tiny adjustment. That's not a, gosh, what do we do with these computer things? At my fingertips, I have a supercomputer that can access almost all of the available human information in the world that doubles every 18 months. Mm -hmm. That's a very different relationship to what you're supposed to do with learning. And, and so you add that to the um, fact machines are truly are going to replace a lot of what we're training our kids to do, be good at. And, and we're potentially sending them into a future buzzsaw where they're beautifully skilled at a game that nobody wants to pay for or <laughs> wants to exist. That's right. That's, and that's kind of, uh, and that's kind of terrifying. What, what won't go away. The, the irony of this is that, the only thing you can bet on are the eight, the timeless skills like empathy, integrity, resist, resilience, persistence, leadership, teamwork, communications, collaboration, critical thinking. Those are all skills, and they're all skills that cross the boundaries between academic and, and social-emotional. And, and we tend to poo-poo the time we spend teaching kids character and social emotional stuff and thinking, well, it's getting in the way of the grinding through more math facts. Um, yeah. The problem is uh, uh, machines are already better at grinding through math facts. Um, when I was in college, I had to learn how to hand calculate what's called a one-way analysis of variance in ANOVA. Um, it's like a, a five-hour math problem. Nobody does that anymore. Nobody hand calculates ANOVAs. You can do it in under a second now. Um, so back then, you had to do with a hand calculator and your brain and hope you didn't make an error. Um, so, but you know it's not going to go away, or at least will be the last thing the re machines replace, is the ability to work with other people to solve complex problems that affect the rest of society and um, the, the trajectory of the future. Yeah. It's going to be hard for the machines to replace that. And, and, but we can teach that stuff. Those are all teachable skills. The problem is we have to find time in school to do that. And better yet, we need to find time outside of school in real world applied context to do that with kids. And to do that, we got to move some of the current stuff out of the way. Yeah, we, we, uh, we agree with that. And, and there are other features, for example, more autonomy and voice and choice in the learning environment that our parents here are familiar with the language that we've uh, very much espoused since 2009. But I think this this notion of the similarity of your language and my language written and spoken is going to be uh, somewhat striking to our community. But I would also say probably fair to, to say that there aren't as many independent school leaders who are uh, professing this uh, publicly in their own school communities. Like we are in, we are in the, uh, the, 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 the lesser percentile of that. I would say it's actually a large number of our our compatriots who realize that the model's broken you see I, I think a lot of i think a lot of school heads want to be having the conversations that you and i are having right now you and i just happen to be blessed to be at places where we can uh, do it in public <laughs> yes do it in public and actually um ask for and get the um uh, sort of uh, trust and patience of our family as we actually, while we're still running school on a daily basis, uh, begin to uh, really poke at 
the model. And so, you know, I, I think that's um, if people are kind of wondering, well, is everybody across the country talking like this? They're not talking like this, but a lot of people are thinking this way. Yeah. The independent school model right now is not a system that wants to be changed by and large. It's right? not even it's not even the independent school model. It's the educational model. It's yeah. um, and it's yeah. not the educational model in the United States. It's the educational model in most of the world. Um, and it's 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 organized around the idea that the teachers drive the schedule, that the kids are the passive recipients of knowledge and that the primary reason of school is the acquisition of knowledge. All of those are central ideas to almost every educational system in the world right now. Um, and I, those are all demonstrably false, actually. And, that was, and that's not an opinion. That can actually be proven now. The problem is, what do you do when your entire school, your district, your state laws around education are all organized around those three ideas? Um, it's kind of tough. Um, and so what I think you're talking about, Dave, is that you know, 15 years ago, you'd go to a conference, educational conference, and they talk about innovation. And there was a debate about how much innovation we should be trying to import in our schools. And there were some people who like pro-innovation. Some people like, you know, this is good enough for me. That debate's over. I don't know a single thoughtful educator who doesn't think the model's broken. Um, the difference is, do they feel like they have enough partners in the parent body and the faculty and the board to do anything about it? And once they decide to do anything about it, assume they do, there are not a lot of great models out there. There's not that much being done out there that is truly um, uh, free of those central encumbrances of the, of the industrial production model. And so when you find one, they're really exciting. But then when you think about importing it into your school, like, whoa, that's going to freak my parents out. I can't do that. Yeah. And, and in the corporate world, um, you know, uh, what, what, the, what the best of the startup and present corporations do who are evolving is they, they set up an R&D area. You know? <laughs> so, you know, we, you and I can't stop school. You know, they're doing it into Georgetown with, with the, with the, with the, uh, uh, with the brick, with the brick, uh, the, the red brick house that they, that they have where they're doing a lot of that uh, conceptualizing of concept in, in, a, in a different space. Georgia Tech's done it. But, yep. you know, we're still running school every day. So I think that's a real encumbrance to education and, and that it can't take from the corporate model to go uh, seed these ideas and test them uh, in an area and bring them back. And believe me, in my community, you probably heard it too, you know, for the tuition we're paying, you know, we can't have our kids be guinea pigs. And that's fair enough. Like that's a fair critique, right? This is a significant investment in our, in our institution. So we change agents, I think, are having to balance uh, pursuing innovation while the uh, while the while the school function is still taking place, and so again, yeah. for our community here, um, it, it's both as you listen to the podcast, an acknowledgement of our empathetic ear to what you're experiencing, but the I, I think I hope compelling urgency of of we education leaders, like in this case articulated by Scott and me, that we've got to keep on this course. Like we we yeah. we have a moral obligation to the next generation of kids to to try to make school work for them. Absolutely, we're all about right. Well, well, I have, a, I have a strong thought around that, which is um, I think the way to, because you just opened the door to it, in, 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 in lots of contexts, if you want to be more innovative than your existing entity is going to be able to, to tolerate, you, you, you create a little uh, adjunct where you take volunteers who want to be experimented with and on, and you go, um, and that's exactly what, how we've done it at Hawkins. So, um, we everything we do that's innovative is either a pilot or a volunteer with a set of volunteers. So um, and not everything, most things. Um, and 
the the origin story of the mastery transcript is the mastery transcript consortium was a complete accident of an effort that we've been working on to create a second high school, a laboratory high school, a, a school within a school where volunteer faculty who want to teach in a completely different model and volunteer students and parents who, who believe like I do that the model's broken and they think that the status quo is more dangerous than anything new and, and, um, and you'd work just with volunteers. So if it's only a small group, great. Um, if they love it, think it's great, feel like they're getting good education and get placed in fine colleges, I think eventually the, the market forces will start to attract more families in that direction. And, in, and hopefully someday, maybe I'll flip the whole mothership. Um, right. Maybe not. Maybe we become a school that has two educational tracks, a common mission in culture and climate, but two educational approaches. I think that's the only way to do it in schools because when you, and I think the reason so many of our peers, Dave, are, are frozen like ears and headlights is not because they don't believe we should change, but because as they think about what it would mean in their current context, it's just terrifying. You're going to have half the board, you know, doubt it. You're going to have always doubting Thomas's parents. You're going to have resistant faculty who are the best lecturer in the school who feel threatened. And when you think about all of those windmills to sort of slay, um, you just go, wow, it's just too much. And don't leave out those, don't leave out those students who've been really so, um, so enculturated to the system. Right. When you start to take away the architecture that they've become effectively dependent upon yeah. and threaten the, uh, the, the, the really narrow base of, of yeah. success metrics that they've been yeah. compelled to think are the right ones. They yeah. don't like the change. They don't like the change either. Um, no. Although you might expect if, if they knew that it was going to potentially enhance their experience at school uh, that, that, that they would. So we wanted to touch on the Mastery Transcript Consortium before, before I let you go, because, you know, you've taken your innovation out, uh, you know, and I, and I think great admiration to those of us in, in the uh, independent school community and uh, led this initiative to start the Mastery Transcript Consortium, uh, short, shorthand called MTC. Um, so uh, for, Parrish happens to be a, 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 not a founding member, but a, but a member of this now over 200 school uh, effort that uh, is about 24 months old. Uh, and tell us this origin story, because you knew that the only way to move the lever uh, around changing uh, from a metric-based and metric-driven uh, mindset when it comes to our role as a preparatory institution was to go out and, and, and change the, the, uh, the recipients of our kids at the college yeah. level uh, about what they're looking for. So sure. take us back to the start of the uh, MTC and, and really how this thing has gained so much momentum in the last 24 months. Sure, sure. Um, so I'd mentioned this lab school. So a small team of us were working on this idea of creating a, a completely different track, a, a group of kids and faculty who would work on a very different schedule that was all organized around um, a couple ideas. One is that uh, there'd be really no courses per se, um, because they'd be really solving real world problems. And those problems would be cycled through the, the lens of disciplines. There'd be problems in, in chemistry and biology. There'd be problems in applied history. There'd be problems um, you know, in communication. So, and we had built some pilot programs. We built an a three credit entrepreneurship uh, program, a, a, credit, a program in applied engineering, a program in architecture and design. And these were 60% of a kid's schedule, this one class, this macro, we call them macro classes. And we want to extrapolate that out into a whole high school. And we started building it. And then we got to assessment. And we said, look, everything the research tells us is that um, formative assessment, you know, feedback, 
um, is hugely valuable. It is maybe the most important, that and a trusting relationship with an adult are, are probably the two most central ingredients to um, education. Um, but summative feedback is dangerous and tricky. Um, when you finally judge someone in comparison to others and you give them a final assessment, um, it's complicated. And so we started thinking about how could we do, um, how could we do feedback better um, in this system? And we immediately came to the conclusion that there were two existing features in our system that were pernicious. Um, one is letter grades. And letter grades are a terrible idea that are only 120 years old. And by the way, I'll say this, no one's ever been able to do this. There is zero research in the world that supports letter grading as a way to enhance learning. None. There's not a single legitimate study. There are over 40 journaled studies that show how negative grading is to learning. And so since I thought school was about learning, letter grade's a bad idea. But even if I can't convince people of that, it was designed by Mount Holyoke University. It was the first to be a five-point scale with C being the midpoint of the scale and only 16.7% of the grades are supposed to be A's. Well, now more than 50% of all the grades in American high schools are A's. So the scale's been compressed into two points, A and not A. Um, <laughs> so, so that was a problem. The other one's the Carnegie unit, the idea that we all are gonna learn on the same time scale, that we're all gonna finish the same amount of learning by the end of the semester. And if we all sit proximate to teaching, we'll get a credit. Um, there is no research that supports that we all learn at the same pace, um, none. And any system that requires that is inherently unfair and disadvantaging kids who are eminently capable of mastering the material but just don't have the time to do it. So we wanted to create an assessment model that didn't, didn't time kids out artificially like Carnegie units and didn't put them most of the feedback into a competitive comparison um, like grading did. So we started creating models, assessment models, and it moved us towards the competency and proficiency movement. And we like the term mastery better, that we want to give kids, kids will persist to mastery. This is, if I could put a bumper sticker on every hawking car in my parking lot, it, it would say persist to mastery. Because right now, if you're a kid who gets a B minus in my class, you didn't master it. I just moved you down the assembly line because the time ran out. Um, I kind of like you to master it. I'd like you to stay long enough that I can teach you all the stuff that I thought was kind of important for you to take my class. So, so, um, and as we built that, we realized, oh, shoot, our biggest problem is going to be, A, how are we going to present this to colleges? And B, how can we convince parents that if we present this to college, it'll be legitimate? So, so we thought we, okay, well, we're hawking. We're pretty creative. Um, so we created a transcript. And when and we well, found, And well-respected, we might add. Yeah. yeah. So we thought, okay, we're, we're a credible agent. Yeah. And my background, prior to be ahead, I did, a lot, I did enrollment management for quite a while. So I have quite a few friends who are, who are vice presidents for enrollment in college. So I took my, our model transcript out to my buddies who were college admission deans. And I said, hey, what would you think if we started presenting our kids like this? What do you think about this? And- they all kind of had the exact same reaction. Um, they looked at it and said, wow, this is really interesting. I can see how this would produce really interesting kids. Yeah, we're going to hate it. Um, and I'm like, well, great. You know, do tell. And they said, well, Scott, if Hawken has a one-off unique transcript, I'm sure it's legitimate, but, you know, we're too busy. We don't have the time to sort of stop the presses, try to figure it out. We'll probably, we'll still admit a lot of your kids, but we'll probably just ignore the transcript and look at everything else. So we literally gave up. We thought, well, that's never going to work. 
And then I ran into a friend of mine who's a dean at an Ivy League school um, who I'd showed the transcript to earlier. And I said, hey, just by chance, what if I brought like 25 other schools with me? It wasn't just Hawkins. What if I could talk some other schools into doing this? And she said immediately, she said, oh, well, then that would be completely different. If it was 25 schools like yours, we would assume it's legitimate and we'd assume we'd get enough that we'd have to learn. We'd have to learn how to read it and we'd, just, we'd, have, we'd respect your school enough to consider it legitimate. And so I said, well, I'll be back. And I invited 30 of my friends who run prep schools from all over the country to spend two days with us in Cleveland having a conversation about it. And then I called the question at the end of the two days and 28 of the 30 schools joined the Mastery Transcript Consortium on the spot. And so that's when I thought, okay, maybe we got a shot. And now we have 219 schools in 21 countries. Um, we opened up our membership to public and charter schools on July 1st. So we have 15 public and charter schools. We expect to have the public and charter schools to be the majority of schools, we hope within the next 18 months. So um, we anticipate growing to over 500 schools uh, within the next 18 months. Um, the, basic the basic premise being by getting to scale, we, we will, we, uh, especially from the independent school standpoint, who, spend, uh, who send a lot of full paying students to these uh, selective colleges, uh, we will have uh, essentially a, 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 a scaled uh, philosophical statement that says to them, uh, you know, look, we want to focus at our schools on deep, powerful learning that is evidentiary, that our kids can perform and demonstrate, uh, and really the mastery transcript of which you guys will create a model, uh, a, sort of a template, if you will, that could be adapted by uh, schools like Parrish or others, right. uh, would be a, a way to convey these powerful skill sets to the colleges in ways which they can interpret and be assured of the kids' readiness uh, and hopefully uh, receive kids that are a lot less, a lot less broken, you know, a lot. <laughs> well, yeah. And so here's, here's the thing, truth about scale. And, you know, I don't, this isn't meant to be a political statement. I know people feel are pro-union, anti-union. Um, if you are in a subordinate relationship to something that has hierarchical authority to you, one of the only ways to get an equal opportunity to sit at the table and renegotiate your deal is to come with numbers. Um, and so let me do a little math exercise for you. Let's say the MTC gets to 500 schools in 18 months. And let's say the average school has, maybe they're small, has 100 seniors, right? And let's say the mastery transcript for most of those schools is voluntary. So only 10% of the families decide that they want to have a mastery transcript versus a traditional graded transcript. Well, that means that, that means you have 10 kids in every one of those 500 schools. So that means you have 5,000 kids and let's say I'm going to use, I'm going to round up. It's a, the average is about seven applications per kid now, but I can't do that math. Yeah, I can. It's 35. That means we would be pumping 35,000 mastery transcripts with only 500 schools into the top 200 colleges in the United States. And by starting with elite prep schools, we know that they disproportionately send those transcripts to elite colleges because elite colleges are the ones that will have the hardest time processing this. Mm -hmm. And, and right now we have, MIT, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, UPenn have all said we will consider the mastery transcript equivalent to a transcript. They're already on record saying that, that kids will not be disadvantaged for this kind. So this idea that you have to have grades and you have to have course labels and Carnegie units to get into college, first of all, is completely false. There are homeschool kids who have no grades who still get into good colleges. Um, but secondarily, we think our transcript will actually be preferred. We just met with the senior admission staff at the University of Michigan, which is, uh, which is both selective and has one of the largest application volumes. 
And they were very open-minded. They said, oh, okay, Scott, we see what you're trying to do. Yeah, if your summary transcript is readable in, in three or four minutes, um, yeah, we'll be able to work with that. We'll work with you. And, and we look forward to, to making this work for both of us. They were not resistant. They did not say, you know, you can't do this. They said, oh, you obviously have a consortium of thoughtful schools. It looks like what you're trying to do is thoughtful. We certainly want to respect that. You know, you have to respect that we have a system that, that has a, needs a high degree of efficiency. So um, your summary has to be useful. And we showed them how we were going to do that. And at the end, we agreed. They agreed to help us. And we agreed to keep them involved in the conversation. So if we can get a school that selective and that large to see this as a credible idea, I, I think most of the other colleges and universities will have, have with a few exceptions, um, will, will not have huge problem with it. And it's not on a speed timeline. We're going to do this thoughtfully. We probably won't be producing mastery transcripts for six or seven years. The platform we need to do, it'll be ready in about a year. But most schools that start this will start with ninth graders. You're not going to start your mastery transcript work with seniors. So it's going to take at least four years after you start trying to produce mastery transcripts before we're sending an app to college. So, so we're not sneaking up on any colleges. We've got four or five years to get them into partnership with us. But so far, so good. The, the feedback we've gotten from college admissions people has been, you know, a little cautious, like, you know, are we going to be able to work with you? But the more they hear about us, the more people are saying, oh, okay, this is, we can, we can make this work. Um, yeah. And I, and I think uh, for, for our parents, uh, this is not today about the intricacies of how that transcript will work vis-a-vis -vis a transcript parish might ultimately have. What I would suggest is this, uh, that this give you assurance that uh, a parish, uh, yes, sees itself as forward-looking, really sees itself leaning in uh, to some important conversations on schools. And we're not alone in doing it. I mean, you got Hawking, and if you, if you want more than Hawking, there's another 200-plus schools across the country that have said, I'm not sure how far I can move my institution, but I'm interested in having the conversation. Yeah. And colleges and universities uh, throughout the country because of MTC have really had their radar raised uh, to schools like Parrish uh, that are uh, aspirant and curious and audacious enough to consider uh, different models. And so if you take nothing away really from today's podcast, uh, I hope it's that, that Parrish is, is not an outlier. It's, it's not out on, on some on some mission uh, that, that they're, um, you know, no. kind of on the bleeding edge. There are some other folks that are right there walking with us. Yeah. Let me, let me add to that to your parents, which is that, you know, our membership includes Andover, Exeter, Dalton, Spence. These are not necessarily progressive schools. They've been around in Andover's case, almost 300 years, but they they're joining because they fundamentally understand that, that the biggest boulder, the single biggest boulder to educational reform in, in our kinds of schools is selective college admissions. And if selective college admissions is set up so that we have to produce, use Carnegie units and produce grades, we're gonna keep grinding our kids through a system that we all are increasingly realizing is unhealthy for them. Mm -hmm. If we can let, if we can credit all of them, and the, one of the aspects of the mastery transcripts that I think is super important, uh, there are two, well, there's a bunch, but the two that I'll point out for your families is one, so that you can receive credit for what are traditionally academic things for your algebraic reasoning skills, for your creative writing, but you can also receive credit, transcript credit, for persistence, resilience, leadership, teamwork, integrity. And the evidence used to earn those credits can be from anywhere in the world that comes from a credible adult. So if you are great in your summer job or your co-curricular leadership is extraordinary, or you know there was a crisis at your school and you stepped in and did something amazing, 
All of that can be used as evidence to earn transcript credit. So we're going to try to credit the whole child. The problem with the industrial production model is that the metrics we've chosen are incredibly reductionist. And the providers are billion-dollar testing companies that can only earn those contracts if they can show a high level of validity. If you want to create a standardized test that has a high level of validity, one of the best ways to achieve that is narrow what you're measuring. And so the kids who fit in that very tight little academic niche get all the bells and whistles and, and you know, rewards and stars, but they're not wholly educated people. And they're also not getting, and there's a whole bunch of kids whose great extraordinary aspects fall outside that rut, who are learning to think somehow they're broken when they're truly extraordinary. And we know this. We look at these, you know, we look at the kids in our schools who think of themselves as bad students and they go out and they, and they found companies and they cure diseases. And, and you think, but they're, and you think, well, how come the system didn't recognize it? Well, because what got them to be successful is their ability to lead people or the ability to be an, an incredible communicator, or their ability to empathize at a deep level and truly understand other people's needs. You can, you can not only credit that, you can actually teach that. And I promise you, if you're not crediting it, you're not teaching it. So if we want to spend time in schools teaching kids to be more empathetic, teaching kids to be better leaders, teaching kids to be um, here's, here's my, I have two fantasy mastery credits. Here are my two fantasy mastery credits that I can't wait to create in my school. Sublimating your own ego for the greater good and agility and ambiguity. You can, we can create a credit called agility and ambiguity. Okay, so we throw you in a messy situation with no instructions. How good are you at sorting it up? I, if I was an employer or college, I'd kind of like, wow, that's a cool kid. That's a hard credit to earn. Or can you put your ego in check when, when what the task in front of you requires you to let someone else lead? Can you do that? Um, you know, people talk about leadership all the time. Can you imagine a world where everybody thought they were supposed to be the leader at the same time? It wouldn't work out, right? So if you have a credit, like sublimating your own ego for the greater good, the culture of your school starts to reflect that. And the, thing, the processes you reward kids with and you show them start to become that school. But if all you credit is physics, chemistry, math, and the only thing you honor is an A, not even an A minus, I'm sure you have kids at your school get an A minus and start to cry, um, <laughs> then you're going to get what you're rewarding. And what we're getting, frankly, are kids who feel like they're broken or kids who are winning the system, but who haven't realized until later that they're turning into neurotic perfectionists. And I know there are some parents like, well, look, how, how can you take a test on sublimating your ego? Like, uh, I, I don't know how you would do that in an multiple choice test. The, the system, the technology system that you've said is under development, in part, would allow the uploading of document, evidence, uh, it, teacher uh, feedback project, or through teacher feedback, or through video, what have you, that uh, would be kind of against a rubric. Uh, verified as demonstrating mastery in, uh, in, in Scott's term. We, we call it kind of competency or proficiency here. So, uh, you know, not again to get into the weeds there, but this stuff is, uh, this stuff is documentable. And uh, this is sort of, I think, where MTC is, is, uh, is really kind of start taking the conversation. So, well, and the game changer, and the game changer is technology because, for sure. um, you know, each of your, you will give your teachers, let's say, let's take your two best writing teachers, right? You would give them the authority to issue the creative writing credit. So a kid would turn their portfolio of their creative writing with the feedback from their teachers in electronically. 
to these two teachers. If those two teachers said, this is great, gave it a thumbs up, the credit then goes on to the transcript. But when the admissions office receives the transcript, they click on that credit, it takes them to the standard and it shows them the actual work product. So we're not trying to hide anything. So that's how you know that it's rigorous. That's how you know it's legitimate because you can't fake it because the colleges are one click away from seeing that the essay that earned creative writing wasn't very good. And so by doing that, the kids know that a college admission officer might actually see this. They, they know that it has to be legit and a school can't fake it. But, and this is, I forgot to mention this earlier, and going back to the Kearney unit, in a traditional um, assessment model, you get graded at the midterm or the end of the, you, you get tests and grades when the teacher tells you it's time. In our model, you turn your portfolio in when you're a student, when you think it's ready. So the deadline is your own deadline. Now, graduation is the ultimate deadline. You got to earn as many credits as you can. But if a kid needs a couple more weeks to put some more, a piece of, of pro poetry they're really proud of in their creative writing folder, then they have two weeks to write another great poem and sit it in their, so, so it gives kids two things. One, it, it, it takes that deadline that's artificial and not fair to them out of the guns. And the second thing it do is it forces them into what we all call in our geeky educationese metacognition. It requires them to think about their own learning and their own thinking and to be able to assess it, to look at what they produce and said, is this good enough? Right now, one of the, one of my biggest critiques of the, the only common denominator of every employee problem I've had is a lack of self-awareness. You know, people who have faults in everything, every other fault is, is correctable. Every other fault can be, but you can't coach people who, who reject external feedback. Self-awareness can be taught. And one of the ways you teach it is you require people to assess themselves. You require them to look at what they're producing and, and see, is this good enough? And then there's a rally check. If they keep sending it in, think it's great and it gets rejected. Now, let's say I think I'm the world's greatest poet and I turn my portfolio into your two creative arts teachers and they bounce it back to me saying, nope, not good enough with a lot of comments. Eventually, I'm going to go, wow, my judgment in there seems really different. Maybe I should rethink my judgment about things. And you learn what good writing looks like. That's how you learn what a good poem looks like. That's how you learn how, what excellent writing looks like, right, is that feedback loop. And, but, it, but right now in the traditional system, it doesn't require any, any self-judgment of the kids. You do your best, you turn it in, you wait to get judged. Right. In this system, you can't turn it in until you prejudge it yourself. You have to look at your own work critically which requires you, by the way, to read all the feedback your teachers gave you that you never read when we hand you back a test with a B minus on it. So when I, when I, you know, I'm a history humanities teacher. When I send a kid an essay back, I write, I mark it up like crazy. And then I put a little grade on it. And 90% and of the time, the kid looks at the grade and puts it in their backpack and never looks at my comments. This system requires them to read that so they know based on how their teachers are responding to their work, whether it's good enough for credit. To me, that's a much healthier way to give kids feedback and a much and a very authentic way to present them to colleges. So I think this will, I mean, I'm obviously biased. I think it's going to flip the entire system. Yeah, and it, our assistant head, Michelle Lyon, uh, uses the, the terminology, which you've just, uh, I think, extrapolated. You know, we're going from time being the constant and learning the variable to learning being the constant and time the variable, right? This Absolutely. is really the, the big difference in what you've just, uh, just articulated in terms of really how the learning cadence works, right? I'm not going to read that comment because I'm on to the next thing. Right. Whereas, you know, if learning is the constant, you're pushing that individual back until the articulated level of med mastery uh, is, de is demonstrated. Absolutely. And I think, uh, that's, that's really part and parcel where we're all, 
where we're all trying to go. And so, again, I think this is an exciting time for independent schools where I know Scott and I would say we are independent by mission and we are independent and we are, we are uh, unencumbered by the bureaucracies of larger public scale. So he and I share a, a philosophy that to truly live in to our independence, you know, we should be the educators and the educational communities Absolutely. that are saying, let us explore the frontier and let us then bring others, you know, with us Absolutely. and support them in going to that place. And so I, again, I think in closing of this pod, uh, you know, I, I, hope, uh, I hope our community says it's a little frightening, you know, to Scott's point about ambiguity and how we manage it. It's, it's a little uncertain, um, but this, is, uh, this is, should be enthralling and, it, and, and something that we find to be uh, part and parcel of our missions as independent schools. Right? Absolutely. That's Absolutely. And I think, what, I think what schools like yours are doing is leading the way for the entire industry, not just the independent in industry, because, you know, public schools have, are much more accountable to a broader and more diverse public. And so therefore, um, the, and they actually are more accountable to a lot of times local legislation. So it isn't until the public will shifts that school leaders in the public system are actually able to do anything. But because all of our families are truly volunteers, they elect to be in our schools. We do have the latitude as long as we can convince them that it's a good idea um, for their kids and their resources we, we can get out front. And given that the whole world is struggling with a broken model, I think if we have an obligation to humanity, independent schools have to step forward and take the risk. We are the most privileged on average in the world. Um, we should be willing to take risk for others. And, um, and, and, and I don't, the irony is, I say that, I don't actually believe it's a risk. I think the greatest risk to our children is continuing on this current path. I think we are, we are feeding them into the abyss. If we don't take a new path towards educating them, uh, we're not really educating them for their future. That's right. Well, well said and a great way to conclude it because you and I both know the three-year-olds that are in our school today are graduating in 2034, right? So I, I have to constantly remind both prospective parents and present parents of our youngers of that reality and how different that world will be to your early point about the iPhone, like just how different that world will be. So, you know, let's continue to unite as an independent school community, as a parish community and in, in, in glancing, uh, glancing forward and, and driving for change. Scott, we admire the work you're doing at Hawk and thankful for your work with the MTC, appreciative of the education you provided to us. And I, and I hope the, uh, affirmation and uh and, and uh, uh it, just uh, excitement for our community to keep doing the work we're doing so thanks for being okay. with me great dave it's great to have you and parish as a partner thank you for listening to this edition of the from my angle podcast please share it with friends and colleagues in your network i'm excited about our upcoming episode of the podcast when i will launch the first in a series of four short editions with graduates of parish It'll be fun to catch up with these young people and learn along with you about how they are thriving as young adults now in the work world. Please plan on joining us for a future episode with our alums and all the episodes to come for the remainder of this year on the From My Angle podcast. <laughs>